Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor results for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Today, we are joined by Dr. Weston Nichols. Don't let his boyish good looks fool you. He's a highly intelligent person, and we're going to talk to him about a number of his areas of expertise, starting with uh, his PhD, which was in nicotine, and then we're going to talk a little bit about his work as a hedge fund operator. <laughs> no, an analyst. Analyst, um, focusing on biotech stocks. So, Weston, maybe you can give a little bit of a deeper background, and, and let's just start with talking about some of your research on nicotinic receptors. Sure. Well, thanks, uh, David, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Sammy, as well. Uh, hey, Weston. Excited about uh, Lucy Gum. It's really cool you guys are doing that, um, you know, and uh, really excited to see it, uh, you know, continue its, uh, you know, strong launch so far. So, you know, to give you some background on me, uh, well... I grew up in Virginia, found my way to Caltech for grad school, where I ended up doing my PhD dissertation on uh, nicotinic receptors. Uh, and I specifically studied, uh, there were kind of two main parts of the thesis, which were, uh, one, this small protein called Lynx, which is uh, a GPI-anchored protein. It's anchored into the membrane of a cell. And I don't know if you, you know a bungrotoxin? Have you ever heard of that? So, Refresh me. Yeah, so so um, so bungrotoxin is a snake. It's a it's a protein that is uh, expressed in snake venom. Uh, and, Any particular kind of snake? Um, snakes that are don't live around here. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know specifically. <laughs> Not the bungaroo snake. <laughs> but um, and so it, it paralyzes the the prey. Okay. Right. So and it, it and acts on acetylcholine, or it acts on the uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Okay. Uh, and it basically makes it not open. Which means that you can't transmit. Actually, sorry, it binds to the acetylcholine receptor. I, th I don't act I th in addition to the nicotinic receptors. Sure. Uh, and uh, so the prey can't move. Sure. And uh, makes it easier to yeah, eat. Yeah, real easy to yeah, move. exactly. And so the structure uh, of links is quite similar to bungrotoxin. Okay. And so it was hypothesized. The she hypothesized that it's essentially expressed. It's turned on at a time point during development of an organism. Uh, in order to kind of allow the nicotinics to fire and then stop firing, to, to, to kind of stop working, which is which essentially what that allows them to do is to branch out and form lots of new synapses very you know early on in development and then and then stop. Okay, so this protein is typically found in uh, every, a developing so we brain. All have it or? Now. No, it, it it turns on in a mouse. It turns on. I think it's something like day. E14 okay. or something like that. Uh, I forget if it's before birth or after birth, but okay. you know, very early on. Okay. And uh, we, it probably reduces the amount of new synapses formed uh, because when you get loss of activation of nicotinic receptors, you form more synapses. 
So that's interesting. We should delve into that part later. Yeah, I don't have much else to say, uh, but um, you know, people think that, right? And so that's why nicotine is uh, nicotinic receptors are very important in learning and memory and um, mood and you know pain and lots of things. Uh, and there's been lots of uh, work done to try to figure out how you can make a drug that you know would be an actual pharmaceutical product to you know for lots of different indications. And there, so a there's nicotine been analog. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, hopefully, I mean, the hopefully, hope would be that you bind to certain subsets of the nicotine receptors and not all, and somehow you select the ones so you can specifically target, you know, pain or, um, and let's come back to epibatidine because that, that was kind of the reason for pain, um, in a minute, but, uh, yeah, focus learning and memory. Cause we know that, um, you know, another key reason to delve into nicotinics from a drug development perspective, uh, is the drugs that work the for Alzheimer's, they don't work very well. They give you about, they basically help your focus, help your cognitive abilities. They basically give you six months back. So it's not very effective, but they do something and you know, everyone's on them. Do they slow progression? Uh, no, they So don't. they just basically wherever you are, you're six months. Yeah. It basically goes six months back basically. And then if you stop taking them, do you Fast forward wherever um, you should have been plus six months. That's or? a great question. Um, I, I think the answer is probably yes. I don't know. I'd have to look it up, sure. uh, but I think it's probably yes. Okay. You probably don't stop taking them because. Yeah. You know, why would I you? Mean, why would, no, they're some people know some people stop taking for tolerability problems. Um, there are people that come off and I'm sure this experiment's been done. I'm sure we have, you know, good data on it, but the drugs for Alzheimer's are um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. And so they inhibit the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. Is that kind of like an SSRI, how it prevents um, like serotonin from being broken down? It's kind of similar. Um, SSRIs uh, inhibit reuptake of serotonin. Okay. So it's like an MAOI, basically, okay. like the, the analog of an MAOI, but for acetylcholinesterase. But, but for uh, my sake and those of the people listening, can we simplify the explanation for that a little bit? So you're saying... An acetylcholine esterase inhibitor is something that stops the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. That's right. So that the synapse in the synapse, yeah, within the in this in the cleft, which leads to a higher level of acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter in the synapse, which means that and acetylcholine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Uh, Yeah. So it enables these synapses. Well, I don't, I don't to know. Fire I, actually, I don't better. want to say excitatory. I mean, because it, it binds the nicotinic receptor, mm-hmm. and then it makes the nicotinic receptor more likely to open. That seems excitatory. Yeah, um, yeah excitatory but, describes like the 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 yeah, downstream yeah. effects of the receptor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like glutamate is the is the most sure. con, is like the you know the prototypical example, yeah. excitatory. Uh, you know, and then GABA is you know you would think kind of inhibition. Right. But you know it depends on what neuron it's on because you you do have nicotinic receptors on the GABAergic uh, interneurons sure. within certain brain regions, sure. which which you know decrease overall excitation in the brain. Sure. Okay. But let's, okay. So let's zoom back out for a second. So acetylcholine esterase inhibitors mm-hmm. help people with Alzheimer's function better yeah. because. Well, uh, I mean, I don't know that we know exactly. Um, but what do you know, these drugs do? Like in terms of, you know, they, they increase the amount of, they increase the cholinergic ter- tone yeah. of, yeah, of that, the brain. That's, I think that's the theory. Can you describe yeah. what cholinergic tone means, Sammy? It's just it increases the amount of of 
uh, activated cholinergic receptors in the brain because you have more acetylcholine in the synapse. Okay. Right. So, so it's like, like a it's very extremely gross... complicated and very confusing because if you dump a bunch of acetylcholine onto a population of certain types of nicotinic receptors, such as alpha seven, for example, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, lots of different types, right? But alpha seven, it desensitizes very rapidly. So when you have acetylcholine, it might, two acetylcholines might bind the channel and then it opens, but then it clamps shut and it's in a desensitized state where it's shut and you have two acetylcholines bound. Mm-hmm. And so it's extremely confusing because some people say, so whenever you do an experiment, essentially with alpha seven, you can either say, oh, it's increased. You can say oh, the drug increased like acetylcholine or nicotine increased alpha seven function. And therefore that's what it's doing. Or you could say it, uh, it decreased function through desensitization mm-hmm. and you won't know what, you don't really know which one's correct. Sure. Right. Sure. So, you know, you can very hand wavy, you know, and it makes it very difficult to develop drugs because you can have drugs with different properties of how much desensitization they have. And there are, there's actually one very exciting drug that, uh, basically gets around the issue of desensitization because it's not an agonist. So, an agonist such as acetylcholine or nicotine would bind uh, the alpha seven receptor and it opens it, but then it desensitizes quickly and shuts, right? Mm-hmm. Alpha seven is one of the fastest descent is the fastest desensitizing nicotinic receptor. Cool. And so it's so, like I've done my job. I fired and now I'm taking a long rest. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so there were a bunch of programs, uh, targeting alpha seven with, with agonists. Why would you want to target alpha seven? Um, that's a great question. Um, so people thought that alpha seven is expressed in certain brain regions that, uh, such as the hippocampus and, uh, so the entorhinal cortex. Okay. Yeah. So uh, thought to be, if you, maybe if you could increase at brain activity in these regions, mm-hmm. you could help Alzheimer's patients Okay. because well, clearly so that acetylcholine sounds, does this so that, somehow that does sound like downstream excitatory right it sounds like then that perhaps people with uh, I mean, brains yeah, that have alzheimer's thinking. that is the thinking but what if it's what if these what if what acetylcholine esterase inhibitors work via desensitization of alpha 7 so it could be that so it could be two uh competing mechanisms and we're not sure what it is it could just be that there's too much gunk in the brain in the form of tau protein or whatever in Alzheimer's. And so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really want tau and amyloid beta, you okay. know, the field's a mess. Okay. So, uh, uh, so yeah. avoiding that, but it, it could be that in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, they have a hard time getting their neurons to fire appropriately. And that could either be because they don't have enough of a jump start, or it could be because there's too much noise. And then I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, this is all very difficult. You know, I don't know if their neurons aren't firing. I mean, they have less synapses in general, Alzheimer's patients. So it could be, okay. But also old people. Could be a number of things, but we have noticed the symptoms improve when yeah, you give we, them yeah, the... So we do know that. Okay. These drugs do work to some extent. Sure. And so the thinking is, let's interrogate that as much as possible to mm-hmm. try to find more drugs and, you know, just make progress. Sure. And so so we know acetylcholinesterase inhibitors work, number sure. one. Okay. Number And then number two, we know... Alpha seven is highly expressed in brain regions that where it, it seems that alpha that uh, Alzheimer's kind of starts. 
okay. where you start to lose synapses in the entorhinal cortex and the hippocampus kind of before other regions. Okay. And so maybe if we specifically target alpha seven, mm-hmm. we can have a good effect, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's, maybe it's a better effect than just acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. And so there was a very promising uh, phase two clinical trial done. And I, I remember reading it when I was in grad school. So I don't know when it, you know, maybe 2007 or no, no, sorry, uh, 2000. 11 or 12 it probably Mm -hmm. came out Mm -hmm. and it was a company called forum pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. and a really smart uh, group of scientists you know really a really cool company Uh, because they were taking all these acetylcholine uh, esterase inhibitors yeah i mean they were just they were really interrogating these nicotinic hypotheses and then there was another company targacept uh which um was a spin out of i think rj reynolds of rj reynolds right of a tobacco company um so and then uh, AbV also had a compound. So they had, they had these three compounds. They were all alpha-7 agonists. And they were pretty much all of them partial agonists. Um, what is a partial agonist? Oh, it just means that when they activate the channel, if you compare them to acetylcholine, they let less ions through per unit of time. So the, that, we call that efficacy of an mm-hmm. agonist. Sure. So it's a lower efficacy agonist. Mm-hmm. People get very confused by all these terms, partial agonists, but if you just define them clearly, it's very, it's very simple. Sure. So, uh, so basically, we had three different partial agonists, and they were all a little bit different, but they looked, seemed kind of similar. Uh, and then there was this one paper where the forum compound, uh, it turned out it was probably potentiating the channel at, at a certain dose, and that dose seemed to be where it worked the best. And it was an inverted U, right? So uh, dose response. So basically at lower doses, it didn't, the drug didn't do that much. And then at this one dose, it, it looked good. Mm-hmm. And then at higher doses, it didn't do well either. It, it didn't do much either. The inverted U is, is uh, something that you see in dose response for, for many drugs. Though. I mean, you don't see it that much. It, it, anytime you see an inverted U, you got to be very worried that maybe this effect is not real. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Allergan, by the way, uh, depression drug just mm-hmm. failed this week, yeah. last week. Um, they had a really strong inverted U in their phase two and the phase three. They just failed like four trials, like right all dead negative. Wow. So anytime you have inverted U, you got to be worried. Well, inverted U is really just like describing the shape of a curve. Yeah. So like what you should be worried about depends on what the, what like the axes of that, of that graph is. Right. Cause like, you know. Okay, sure. I guess what you're describing is like it's it's the dose response is not linear or it's not dose proportional. Right. 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 And yeah, that's usually a red flag when you're talking about efficacy or something. Yeah, totally. I agree. Okay, So to just zoom out again, inverted you, what we're talking about is a graph of an axis, which basically says the The X axis is dose. Right. And and the the Y axis is efficacy is is desired effect efficacy. Exactly. So. When you chart this upside down U, you're saying at a low dose, doesn't really work very well. Right. At this medium dose, seems to work fairly well. Yeah. And then at a higher dose, stops working again. Yeah. And you would contrast that with something that would be a different kind of dose response curve. Let's say it were a linear curve, which is a little bit, little effect, medium, medium effect. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and, and then the reason why you wouldn't just dose all the way to the right of the X is usually because patients can't tolerate it. Yes, they get that's side exactly effects. Right. And that's exactly what you see with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors in Alzheimer's. Okay. You, you push the dose, push the dose and you get more efficacy. There is a somewhat of a ceiling effect, mm-hmm. but there's no inverted U at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And you get, you get start to get tolerability issues. So no one really goes that high. And so is that because 
and, it, and that, that could be a number of reasons. It could be the actual receptors in the brain tissue. If they're oversaturated, something is getting messed up there. Or it could be yeah, that you have acetylcholine receptors and, and other neurotransmitter receptors all over your body in different tissue types. Oh, so, well, why you get tolerability problems? Yeah, yeah, sh yeah totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess if we could take a second and just zoom out because uh, I I, I kind of want to get to the like the, form, the, the drugs. Yeah, because it seems yeah. like what we're what we've described is basically acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, which broadly increase the activation of all nicotinic receptors in the brain, seem to have a, a an effect for treating Alzheimer's disease, and that's like very very surprising because you know that's essentially the only drug that works for only type of drug that works for Alzheimer's disease. When we go and try to become more specific and try to activate certain receptors, certain subtypes of receptors, which is when we're talking about alpha seven or alpha four beta two or whatever. Yeah. Types of nicotinic receptors. It doesn't seem like those drugs have worked. Right. They didn't work. So there was a great phase two and it looked good. Uh, it worked at the dose where, you know, it worked in mice and where the inverted U shows that it works. And you know, uh, it looked really good in phase two. And then in phase three, basically all these drugs failed. And, you know, some had tolerability issues. Uh, some just didn't have efficacy. And uh, so, yeah, it just, it, they just didn't work at all. It's a bummer, man. Yeah. And um, then you're describing that those, so those were all agonists. Yeah. And you're saying there's, a, there's potentially a new class of drugs, which yeah. are a partial uh, allosteric uh, modulators? Uh, just allosteric modulators. Okay. Positive allosteric po modulators. Positive, uh, yes. Okay, so, hold yeah. on. We got we to gotta define that term. Yes, we will. So let's, let's ask the question, what happened? Why did all these drugs fail? We do, so we don't know. So there, what are the reasons? One, it could have been that these things are activating the channel, and, and, but they're just not activating the same the whatever channels you need to activate because we know acetylcholine would work, right? If you just inhibited the degradation of acetylcholine via use of an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Sure. So maybe it's not alpha seven or maybe for whatever reason, this drug is causing desensitization of the receptor. And so, you know, if you, if you, if you actually were able to positively modulate the receptor, then it, you could, you could have efficacy, but these drugs had desensitization. So maybe desensitization is the reason why they don't work. Mm -hmm. Or maybe this is just a bad target. Really, really, those are the two issues, right? One, maybe it's not a good target. And two, maybe it, it was desensitization. And so you're not actually getting activation of alpha-7. Maybe. And so there's this really interesting company from Australia, uh, Bionomics. And they have, they're partnered with Merck. So Merck is going to run this trial. But they have an alpha-7 PAM, positive allosteric modulator. So allosteric just means it binds at a site on the alpha seven receptor that is not the acetylcholine site. And so PAM uh, in total means that it binds alpha seven and causes it to be open for longer duration. And it, it doesn't cause desensitization. Well, I get there are, there are some PAMs that might lead to desensitization, but this one doesn't. And does that mean you still need the primary agonist or an agonist in oh, yeah. addition to yes. that allosteric module? That's exactly right. So a PAM is not going to open the channel all by itself. So that's very interesting. So now what happens when you combine the PAM with an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor? So we'll so, find out. So like what would be a, an accurate analogy if I'm bench pressing and uh, you're spotting me and the 
and we're trying to, to open, uh, we're trying to get the bench press, you know, to the height of my arm to open the receptor. Yeah. I'm the agonist because I'm the, the main force that's supposed to open it. And if you yeah. just help me a lot, you're kind of changing the, uh, the yeah, ease of sure. Of, yeah. But there's more to it because, um, the PAM can change all these different properties. It can change how long the channels open. It can change how long it takes the channel to desensitize. Right. Uh, it can change the concentration of acetylcholine that is required to open the channel. And it does this by changing the shape of the receptor itself, usually, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so, slightly, yeah. So there's a lot of, this is a hard thing to visualize, but it's in a lot of like, you know, bio, biochemistry textbooks. There's there's really good figures out there. If you just Google yeah, lots a of PAM, yeah. uh, you'll, you'll be able to see a figure yeah. on it. Okay, yeah. so, so moving on then. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm excited about this PAM. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see if it works. Well, it Hopefully Merck like runs a phase, big phase three and asks the, answers the question. It sounds like there's a lot of questions to answer about these PAMs. Like, what type of PAM would actually work? And, what and each of those is like in a different experiment, right? That's yeah, going to require yeah. thousands of patients to, un, you know, understand if it's going to work. And what receptor right. is this for, this PAM? Alpha 7. It's the a, Alpha 7 nicotinic receptor. So... How many different nicotinic receptors are there? Why is so, why, why alpha seven all the time? Why alpha seven? Because of the brain regions where it's located. Okay. It's, it's specifically for Alzheimer's. Okay. That's um, right. okay. Yeah. So nicotinic receptors, just high level. They're they have five subunits, and you combine five subunits to form one channel, which is a, essentially a pore in the membrane because they can open and close. Mm -hmm. And the five subunits they have various combinations. Um, so in terms of just proteins, you have alpha 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and there's a 10, and there might have been like an 11 discovered recently. I, 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 don't, I don't know that much about the real high numbers, but so there's at least 10, I think. I think the higher numbers are like in the ear only or something, but basically in the brain, there is some number of them. And, oh, and sorry, so of the subunits, it's generally either five alphas as with alpha seven it's actually five alpha sevens uh and then there's and the other the most common receptor in the brain is alpha four beta two which has either three alpha fours and two beta twos or it can have two alpha fours and three beta twos and that was the second half of my phd <laughs> okay, perfect um so there's been some hypothesis that nicotine could reduce your risk of Parkinson's. That's exactly what I wanted to ask next. Okay. Right. So essentially smokers, there's epidemiological data that smokers are less likely to get Parkinson's and controlling for the fact that they die earlier. They, they did control. Yeah, for that. Yeah. Yeah. They control for that. And so the question is why and what's going on there. So the, the alternative hypothesis that, you know, was, you know, so it, it kind of, it's kind of similar to the debate. I know you know a lot about the debate, Sammy, uh, of, you know, does smoking cause lung cancer or not? Because that was a fascinating time in history. Obviously, it does cause lung cancer. Um, but No longer a debate. Not, not a debate anymore. But it was fascinating to see the science develop. And I know you can talk about that a lot more. And hopefully, I don't know if you've already done a podcast on that, but that's a fascinating topic for another podcast. But for Parkinson's, you know, so the, so the, the alternative hypothesis is that there is some factor that makes people both less likely to get Parkinson's and more likely to smoke for some reason. And that's not, I mean, that's not crazy. It could be true. 
Right. So that would that would explain the correlation between smoking and lack of getting Parkinson's because there's a correlation. Right. Right. But so how do we explain that correlation? So it's either either smoking reduces your risk straight up or there's some factor X that causes both, you know, more likely to smoke and less likely to get Parkinson's. And we don't know what factor X is. Could it be the MAOIs? Uh, no, no, no. Because uh, patients, you start taking those if you already have Parkinson's. You're not going to start taking those early, I don't, at least as far as I know. Um, aren't there MAOBs? MAOI. I don't think those have a link with increasing or decreasing your risk of Parkinson's. I think I, I think the so factor X could be. So legiline yeah, is yeah. that an example of something that yeah, people take for Parkinson's? B, right? I think that's a yeah. MAOB. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, it, I don't think it causes Parkinson's. Yeah, because we we need factor X to be prevents. something, or either way. Because, I mean, it definitely helps Parkinson's patients, but um, we need factor X to be something that both increases your risk of smoking and, incre- and uh, decreases your risk of Parkinson's. Why does it need to increase your risk of smoking? To explain the correlation between the two. Well, what if it's just something that's present in um, tobacco? Oh, is it? That would be the other hypothesis. That would be the MAOB. Oh, no, wait, is it present in tobacco? No, that would... Basically, you're trying to separate causation from correlation. Yes. There is a correlation. You're trying to determine, is it causation or be of, of tobacco or nicotine? Or is it some other factor independent of tobacco, you know, preventing Parkinson's that causes you to smoke, be more likely to smoke, and be more less likely to develop Parkinson's? Right. So right. It, it could be some genetic thing. That actually might could make sense to me. Uh, so the genetic thing would just be like, I fucking love smoking cigarettes because yeah. I'm genetically and and yeah, for the same reason why I love smoking cigarettes is the same reason why I'm not likely to get yeah. Parkinson's Yeah, or I happen to smoke cigarettes yeah. and either nicotine or one of the 7,000 other chemicals. It's yeah. neuroprotective. Yeah. So there's trials underway to test this. There's one that's coming out very soon. I don't know the results yet, but they used, I think they used a nicotine patch to try to see what effect that has on Parkinson's. And I mean, it was a big trial. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know much about it. This isn't Paul Newhouse. Paul Newhouse is Alzheimer's primarily, right? This is the Michael J. Fox uh, foundation foundation trial. I think it's a big European trial. Right. Yeah. And we don't know. We'll get the results results very soon. I I think the trial is done, but I think they're just still analyzing the results or something. I haven't kept up with it, but it's coming out soon. So it'll be, you know, it'll be in the news and stuff. Hopefully. So if you, uh, if you see that to be, uh, likely to be the case, will you be slapping nicotine patches on? Oh man, I don't know. Um, I mean, I suppose, uh, I suppose we really should, you know, consider as a public health thing. Yeah, I mean, Using we give nicotine. we give statins like you know pr- pr- you know as a, as sort of a prevention type of medication. I don't think that that's necessarily uh, you know widespread and accepted, but it is something that you know public health officials are debating whether that should be done. Yeah, I mean, if that trial is positive, um, that I mean, that's a pretty strong case that you know that smoking does make it less likely to get Parkinson's and it is the nicotine that makes you less right. likely to get Parkinson's. Right. So hopefully it's positive. I mean, I mean, that would be, I mean, everyone should be taking Lucy gum every day is really what uh, <laughs> I would take away from that. That would, that would be my takeaway as well. I mean, and, and also using statins as an example, I think the side effects of uh, long-term use of nicotine are uh, pale in comparison to the long-term side effects of taking a statin. Are there, I, I would, I haven't looked into that. Are there any long-term side effects of, of nicotine? 
just nicotine without and not smoking? Not as far as we know. I mean, there's some theoretical data that it could be a, um, it's not a carcinogen, but there's some rat data that it could be uh, angio, it could uh, help with angiogenesis of tumors. But we talked to um, a really famous scientist um, who's been studying uh, nicotine for a long time. Uh, I only don't say his name just because I'm not sure how vocal he is about this opinion. But when we spoke with him, he said, if you looked at the snus data, which they've been struggling to uh, prove any correlation between long-term use of snus even and uh, cancers, uh, that you would see a, a increased rise in all cancers and among what snus is, users. What is snus? Snus is like those little tobacco pouches. But it's tobacco. Been, yeah, but they're pasteurized. They're treated in a certain way so that it's lower in um, the nitrosamines, um, the sort of prime carcinogenic agent that we worry about. Interesting. Um, and then the other long-term theoretical effect of, of nicotine use is um, because it's a, a short-term vasoconstrictor that maybe it's... Um, uh, it'll be, you get a small bump in blood pressure probably? Yeah, potentially. But well, it seems... That's, that's also controversial. Uh, it seems like it might lower b- blood pressure uh, chronically, but it does increase your heart rate acutely. Hmm. So because of the amount of nicotine that people will do during the day, you know, the amount of time you spend with in sort of, you know, tachycardia, uh, people think that that might be a risk factor for uh, cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's been pretty well studied. Caffeine has been pretty well studied for its effect on cardiovascular disease. And I don't think it has any increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease, right. but there certainly are autonomic effects in terms of increased increased uh, heart rate and, and, yeah. and blood pressure in the very short term. But those autonomic effects go away with continued use. Right. Uh, so. And, and Paul yeah. Newhouse, actually, uh, the professor at Vanderbilt who studies uh, nicotine patch and other nicotine uses for the treatment of Alzheimer's, gives high dose nicotine used to be intravenously to wow. very old patients and huh. has not had any issues. Huh. Interesting. There's also been a lot of trials for NRT in people that have pre-existing cardiovascular uh, uh, disease yeah, or yeah, people yeah. that have had events in the past That's good. and it doesn't seem to increase the risk of death or future events relative to control. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right. And, and because, um, you know, I've been stuck with two biochemistry PhDs for this podcast, we've been going really, really deep into the science, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about Weston's career path. And, uh, for lots of our listeners who, um, you know, may be interested in, you know, what kind of careers in science there are and, uh, sort of how you got to where you are and, and what is your kind of day-to-day look like? And, and can you describe that a little bit for people? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I graduated from Caltech and, uh, you know, I had a pretty good uh, scientific, uh, you know, ability to evaluate research. And I was lucky that I was in a nicotinic lab because at the time there were all these drugs that we just talked about. And so I was able to kind of gain by, by looking at all that clinical data and had access to talk to the people at these companies. Uh, and so I kind of learned, began to learn how to evaluate clinical data as a well, you know, human clinical data and, you know, just kept on the path. You know, well, one thing I do pretty much is, you know, a big core of my process in finding 
so, I mean, you know, I just look for investment ideas, right? Mostly in public markets, uh, you know, the privates as well, but mostly public. And, you know, you just look for stuff that's misunderstood, uh, where you think the value is a lot higher than what's priced in currently. So for my layman's view on your process and, and how things work, it seems like you kind of look at three kind of buckets of criteria. The first one being the publicly available data that anyone could see, which is what are the company's financials? What has it done in the past? What's in the pipeline? Then you look at the trials uh, that it has done on different molecules in that pipeline. And you can use your math abilities to basically see if you think that it's statistically underpowered or there's some sort of anomaly in the data. And then finally, because of your biochemistry background, you're able to look and say, what does this molecule look like compared to other molecules that may have worked or not worked? Or what is a plausible mechanism for why this works? And so that's why you, as a biochemistry PhD, has an advantage over someone without that scientific background who's analyzing biotechs? Yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, I typically divide... I have lots of ways of dividing things up just to help me frame problems. But, um, yeah, I mean, one way I, I do divide it up is the preclinical data, the mechanism of the drug, and then the clinical data. And if they all make sense, and for whatever reason the market doesn't think that it makes sense, then you, you look at the drug and say, okay, well, what percent chance does this drug have of succeeding and of getting approved? And then you ask the question, all right, well, if it gets approved, what are the sales going to look like? And then you ask the question, the financial question of, well, if it has those sales and I, and all that stuff is right, or at least, you know, my estimates are conservative and I think they're going to be at least that, then how much money is this company going to make? And, and how much then, will the stock price rise? Yeah, exactly. And then you also uh, will sometimes even interview the leadership teams at these different companies, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, you meet with management, sure. And that's that's something that you know, all hedge funds yeah, do in all industries. That. Yeah, everybody does. But that. is there some amount of poker that goes on when you ask someone a tough question if you see the fear in their eyes? I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously they can't tell you inside information. You know, you, you yeah, know, they you know. don't. I mean, there's lots of regulations. I mean, they get in big trouble if they do that. And right, I, right. So they don't, it doesn't really happen that much. But um, I don't know. I don't, I, most of my uh, good investment ideas don't come from getting some kind of read from management. Uh, I mean, maybe, and I can't think of an example. Potentially, yeah, maybe, but it's just so easy to mislead yourself with that stuff. Yeah, were they blinking because they had something in their eye, or? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, even even if you know someone very well, uh, you know, you've met them. I mean, fifty times over the course of ten years. Sure. I mean, that's, I just don't think that's the basis for me personally for an investment decision. There are people that are very good at it. Sure. Okay. That's not me. So. Let's talk about uh, the biotech industry at large then. What subsets uh, or drug categories do you see um, a lot of exciting movement in the next five, ten years? Um, Well, you know, I try to actually be really therapeutic uh, indication agnostic. I try to look at everything because for a couple reasons. One is you don't want to cross off indications you think are not promising just because, you know, there hasn't been a drug that's worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking for, for indications where there is a real market, where there's a real need, that where, you know, patients would actually take the drug if it were approved. 
and uh you're saying that you're there's no particular industry that you would want to call out in particular um you're saying well, that look i mean i think we're making progress everywhere um well that's encouraging yeah because you never know what you're going to get you really don't you really don't and uh you know success comes out of nowhere sometimes and well let's let's talk about alzheimer's in particular because that's something where like historically the great majority of drugs have failed. I think the failure rate for drugs in the clinic is like over 99%. Like what would make you want to invest in a company developing an Alzheimer's drug? What would it take to convince you? You know, just the same thing it would take me in any other indication. Uh, You know, the mechanism makes sense. I mean, you're not going to prove it with the mechanism in Alzheimer's because so few things are proven. Preclinical data, I probably would place less weight on. Because, you know, if you're, if you're helping Alzheimer's in a mouse, you know, I don't really know what that means, right? I mean, there are certain things that are going to translate well from mouse to human, where, where the physiology is very similar. But in terms of, just in general, most cognitive indications, the mouse doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, what you can say from mouse data is that the drug is active, and that's about it. I mean, unless it jumps out of the cage and starts rattling off Shakespeare to you. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that hasn't happened. So, um, can you delve into why the mouse then, data is not relevant for Alzheimer's? I it just I it hasn't translated before, and I don't know what it means, right? Well, I, I, I don't know. know. I mean, if a mouse can, if a mouse suddenly is old, exhibits what we think are the mouse symptoms of Alzheimer's. That, I don't know what that is. So, can't run a maze. Uh, can't learn no, how to run a maze. I don't know what that means. So, those, okay, what are the tests that, I mean, that's that, are, a hippo, that use? That would that would be indicative of some sort of hippocampal improvement, right? If you can no, go from I don't, I not don't memorizing a maze to being able to memorize a maze. I don't would, know. I really well, don't know. I mean, so maybe one of the reasons is that mice don't they don't get Alzheimer's, right? Like a lot of human diseases, you can create, you can replicate the the pathology in a mice by, for example, creating the mutations that are, you know, that seem to be causative in humans or by, you know, infecting it with the pathogen that would also be infectious in humans. But with Alzheimer's, mice don't live long enough to get Alzheimer's. They probably don't even have the same brain structures which would lead to, to development of Alzheimer's. Right. So how do you even create a model that that somehow you know replicates the symptoms and, and pathology of Alzheimer's? We need right. to set up some sort of mouse summer camp in Florida where all of the older lab rats and lab mice can go well, to. Well, they do have retirement homes for monkeys in Florida. Okay. Uh, maybe there's some interesting thing. I'm sure there are very good scientists doing interesting things with you know, new uh, animal models of Alzheimer's. Those poor uh, monkeys, I don't know enough though, about it. They just like just when they thought that they were done and retired. <laughs> it's like no, nope, no, they have good. Got, they, just when they well. thought they were out, very, very well. <laughs> they pulled so, them back in. That's so sad. They live in like little apartments and they have TVs and stuff. It's really the monkeys have TVs. Yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I've read a little bit about it. I don't Do know. They that play much, golf. No, they don't. But uh, you know, they have. They're treated they well. They're treated well. You know. You so the third aspect is the clinical data. If the clinical data looked great for an Alzheimer's drug, then I would consider investing. Okay. But, you know, it's very difficult because if the clinical data looks great for an Alzheimer's drug, well, you know, probably most people know about that. Yeah, that's so, true. So, you know, I'm trying to find something good in Alzheimer's, but it's very difficult. Okay. It's very difficult because it's very picked over. Everyone looks at it. Yeah. Right. You want to look at things that other people aren't so aren't looking at so hard. Sure. So finding undervalued opportunities right. is the main activity of a 
intelligent investor. Um, no, so before we go, um, I think we'll have to ask you uh, just one sort of parting question or series of questions. I think uh, you have a really interesting perspective because you analyze the efficacy of drugs all day. And most people have a blind faith in modern medicine. Yeah. So are there is there anything on Dr. Weston Nichols' list of things that most people don't know or don't consider the risks seriously enough uh, in certain medications that they take or, or things that they can do? Maybe it's a, a dietary thing that can really help them. Um, is, is there anything that you kind of think about yourself that you would recommend to your family that, that might be uh, not well known or, or maybe something that's well known, but you would want to emphasize anyway? I don't know that I have any particularly weird habits. I mean, I'd say lifting weights, you okay. know, and just making sure you're strong because I just read a really uh, fascinating paper in, uh, I think it was the Lancet, uh, where it came out in the past two months, being frail. Mm hmm increases your chance of Alzheimer's about the same percent as having a brain full of amyloid, which, you know, some people think that the field generally, well, these did think in various states now that amyloid causes Alzheimer's mm -hmm. in the brain. Uh, you know, there's a little bit, a lot of failures. So maybe yeah, we'll, we'll, we have another couple of big ones coming up here. Uh, the Biogen aducanumab antibodies data is going to come out next year, Okay, but, um, you know, just not being frail. Uh, but, but just going back to your uh, one other thing you said, why it's important to look at many different indications for people who, you know, might be interested in this. I think it's critical to look at uh, many indications. So I'm relatively early in my career, right? I'm, you know, 34. I've met some people, been very lucky to meet some people who have looked at drugs in hundreds of different indications and they they get insights because they have such broad knowledge, uh, and I hope to be like that when I'm older. So it's like the Warren Buffett thing, where he just yeah. reads these prospectuses. Well, he just day knows day about out. Buffett. Just knows about every single industry, and so that helps him with a new industry, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, it, and it gives you an advantage because you've seen so many things happen. So you can be better than the expert in a disease. Because you know that disease, not as well as the expert, but you know, you know, a hundred different diseases and, and what's happened with how drugs have played out over time. And so, you know, I know, you know, one guy who I actually just spent time with this week, you know, he's a professor and, uh, but he, he's involved with a lot of biotech companies and he just knows, you know, the history of hundreds and hundreds of drugs. And he's been intimately involved with designing the clinical trials and all this stuff, mostly in endocrinology and metabolic. And, you know, I hope to be like that. So, you know, just, just, just gradually snowballing your, your uh, domain expertise over, you know, decades, I think creates a big, uh, a big advantage. So, you know, that's my goal and that's what I would recommend Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. This is, this has been great. And, uh, and before we, we go, I'd yeah. like to wish our, uh, our host a uh, happy birthday. Oh, oh happy birthday, David. Thank, birthday. You. thank you guys. Pleasure thank to you. be here with you on your birthday. I appreciate it. Um, well, let's, uh, let's go celebrate. Let's do All it. right. All right. Thanks. Thanks everybody for joining us today on another episode of how to sell drugs presented by Lucy.co. We're a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We hope that you learned something today, or at the very least, were entertained. 
and we'll be back very soon with our next episode. Thank you.